Asiento. Take a seat at Asiento on 21st and Bryant. Meet friends for a drink, have delicious tapas, and a relaxed community atmosphere. Asiento, honestly, is a wonderful place. They have incredible bartenders and board games all over the walls. Trivia on Mondays, Taco Tuesdays, First Wednesday, live jazz, live DJs Thursday, parties. The food is darn good. Special happy hour prices all night long with your Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival ticket, March 1st through 5th. Check out the schedule at www.asientosf.com. Come take a seat. I had a date there and it did not go well. But it wasn't the fault of the place. They're very nice. Asiento. El Rio began her life in 1978 as a leather Brazilian gay bar. We are an LGBTQ plus space who is welcoming to all good people. We actively invest in communities to promote social change. We actively invest in our local arts and music scene to give space for artists. We actively pursue underserved communities in the use of our space. We are an awesome supporter of the 5th Annual Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival, hosting an incredible offside show. Wednesday, March 4th, 9 to 11 p.m. with LGBTQ plus and allied comics. So come out to 3158 Mission Street at Cesar Chavez, San Francisco. It's open every day at 2 p.m. with an incredible back patio. El Rio is your dive.
morning mutineers a bit of weight when i saw
and you're listening to Labor and Love Radio. And uh, you just started out with uh, Dock of the Bay and The Weight, both products of Playing for Change. Uh, where they get people from all over the world and um, um, put to, put together a, a song including solos and um, segments of singers from all over the world. This is the B. This is the Labor and Love radio show. Let's listen to Margaret Walker for my people. 
Margaret Walker Alexander. For my people everywhere, singing their slave songs repeatedly, their dirges and their ditties and their blues and jubilees, praying their prayers nightly to an unknown God, and bending their knees humbly to an unseen power, for my people lending their strength to the years, to the now years, and the gone years, and the maybe years, washing, ironing, cooking, scrubbing, sewing, mending, hoeing, digging, planting, pruning, patching, dragging along. Never gaining, never knowing, never reaping, and never understanding. For my playmates in the clay and dust and sand of Alabama blackyards, playing, preaching, and doctor, and jail, and soldier, and school, and mama, and cooking, and playhouse, and concert, and store, and Miss Toomby, and hair and company. For the cramped, bewildered years, we went to school to learn to know the reasons why, and the answers to, and the people who, and the places where, and the days when. In memory of the bitter hours, when we discovered we were black, and poor, and small, and different, and nobody cared, and nobody understood. For the boys and girls who grew in spite of these things to be man and woman, to laugh, <laughs> and dance, and sing, and play, and drink their wine, and religion, and success to marry their playmates and bear children and then die of <coughs> consumption and anemia and lynching. For my people, thronging 47th Street in Chicago or Lenox Avenue in New York or Rampart Street in New Orleans lost disinherited, dispossessed, and happy people filling the cabarets and taverns and other people's pockets, needing bread and shoes and milk and land and money and something, something all our own. For my people walking blindly, spreading joy, Losing time, being lazy, sleeping when hungry, and shouting and shouting when burdened, drinking when hopeless, tied, tangled and shackled among ourselves by the unseen creatures who tower over us omnisciently and laugh. For my people blundering and groping and floundering in the dark of churches and schools and 
clubs and societies, associations and councils and committees and conventions distressed and disturbed and deceived and devoured by money-hungry, glory-craving leeches preyed on by facile force of state and fad and novelty, by false prophet and holy believer. For my people standing, trying to fashion a better world from confusion, from hypocrisy and misunderstanding, trying to fashion a world that will hold all the people, all the faces, all the Adams and Eves and their countless generations. Let a new earth rise. Let another world be born. Let a bloody peace be written in the sky. Let a second generation fill of, full of courage issue forth. Let a people loving freedom come to growth. Let a beauty full of healing and strength of final Clinton be the pulsing in our spirits and our blood. Let the martial songs be written. Let the dirges disappear. Let a new race of men now rise and take control. For my people, And good morning, mutineers, laborers, and lovers. This is the B, and you're tuned to Mutiny Radio. The name of the show is Labor and Love Radio. I want to remind you, even before we begin, about the Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival coming up on March 1st to March 10th. 76 comics from all over the country will congregate on Mutiny Radio. Let me make sure I got those dates right. Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival 2020. Where little old Mutiny Radio, right here at 2781 21st Street, becomes the comedy capital. March 1st to 7th, bringing national comedians together for live comedy. This is where comedians showcase their talent and develop their chops. So come on down. Shows from 10 to 10 every day from the 1st to the 7th. I hope I see you down here. Mutiny Radio needs you. So this is the Labor and Love Show, and we started out today. Labor and Love, where the labor meets the road. Labor and Love Radio, where we tell you how it is. If one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. Right? Gotta be. That's how capitalism is. Remember, if you don't have a seat at the table, 
a negotiating table that is where you work you're on the menu no doubt about it somebody is sitting down and deciding about your life when and where and how you will work and under what conditions and remember never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor and when I say labor I mean you of course they don't want you to have a labor union of course they don't want you to organize and work together your work makes them rich Okay, we started out uh, sort of a mixed bag there. We started out with the weight, a production of, like I said, Playing for Change, where players and singers from all over the world perform a song and their, their parts are pieced together to make a whole. We had the weight great band song in uh, Dock of the Bay tribute to Otis Redding and then we had Margaret Walker great great poet with For My People and the reason I played that is well it's uh, February 15th day after Valentine's Day and we remember uh, Che Guevara's statement that Revolutionaries are motivated by feelings of love. Margaret Walker talking about her people, the things they had gone through and what would happen in the future. Up to us to realize those dreams. And I do want to play another poet. I want to play Dr. Maya Angelou, certainly um, one of the best known poets, and I can remember Maya Angelou uh, when I was studying at Berkeley. I was a student of poetry, a loving student of poetry, as Allen Ginsberg put it. And people thought of Maya Angelou as sort of a pop poet, kind of a rhymester, you know. Um, certainly not a serious poet. Then I suppose I started to look at poetry in a different way. My Angelou is the kind of poet that we call a bard, someone who is a voice for her people. Here she is. It's called Still I Rise. With your bitter, twisted lies. You may trod me in the very dirt, but still like dust, I'll arise. Does my sassiness upset you? Why are you beset with gloom? Just because I walk as if I have oil wells pumping in my living room. Just like suns and like moons, with the certainty of tides. Just like hope springing high. Still I rise. Did you want to see me broken? Bowed head, lowered eyes, shoulders falling down like teardrops, weakened 
by my soul for Christ. Does my sassiness upset you? Don't take it so hard just because I laugh. <laughs> As if I have gold mines digging in my own backyard. You can shoot me with your words. You can cut me with your lies. You can kill me with your hatefulness. But just like life, I'll rise. Does my sexiness offend you? Oh. Does it come as a surprise that I dance as if I have diamonds at the meeting of my thighs? Out of the huts of history, shame I rise. Up from a past rooted in pain, I rise. I'm a black ocean leaping and wide, welling and swelling, I bear in the tide. Leaving behind nights of terror and fear, I rise. Into a daybreak miraculously clear, I rise. Bringing the gifts that my ancestors gave, I am the hope and the dream of the slave. And so, thank you, Andrew Young. Happy 75th birthday. Thank you. Okay, that was Maya Angelou at a uh, tribute to Andrew Young. Unfortunately, Andrew Young became an apologist for, uh, after a distinguished civil rights career, became an apologist for uh, Nike shoes. Huh? After he was mayor of Atlanta for a while. Okay, this is the Labor and Love Show. What do we got today? We got some Albert King and... Stevie Ray Vaughan. We got the labor beat. The House proposes a new set of laws to help working people and unions. Interview with Sarah Nelson, uh, reputedly a candidate for AFL-CIO president. Now she's head of the airline workers union. Labor in two minutes. And much, much more. Let's listen right now to Radio Labor, our worldwide connection for labor news from all over the world. Remember, you're only alive, you're only alone when you don't stand up. And if you don't stand up, They'll say you stood up for sitting down. Radio Labor. Radio Labor. This is a Radio Labor World Report recorded on Friday, February 14th, 2020. I'm Mark Belanger. In the report this week, 16 million American workers want to join unions but are being stopped. Seafarers oppose flag of convenience ships. The Labor Start report about union events and singing. They tried it all before, but with the tricks and legal wars, and there's nothing they can do, cause we're unions through and through. 
This is Radio Labor. The labor movement in the United States is demanding that the right of workers to join unions be protected. Unions represent about 10% of the country's workforce compared to 20% 40 years ago. That decline is often cited by right-wing politicians as saying that American workers do not want to join unions. But that's not true. More than 60 million workers in the United States say they want to join a union. The problem is that politicians and employers have fought down union drives in every way possible. The answer, according to the AFL-CIO, is the passage of a proposed piece of legislation called the Protecting the Right to Organize Act, known as the PRO Act. The AFL-CIO is the largest labor federation in the United States. Its president, Richard Trumka, spoke about the PRO Act at a recent conference. In more than 40% of all union organizing drives, employers simply break the law. They lie. They coerce. In some cases, they fire union supporters. Workers are forced to attend mandatory meetings with one item on the agenda, and that's to make people afraid to exercise our right to form a union. And these messages of fear and intimidation are coming from the very people who control our paychecks, who control how much time we can spend with our family, and control whether we'll have a job in six months or a year down the road. Now, that's how you end up with an economy where more than 60 million people say they would vote to join a union today, but only one in 10 actually have one. Workers want in, and is it any wonder why? Simply put, workers in unions bargain for higher wages, are much more likely to have health care and pensions. The union advantage is even greater for people of color. Unionized workers have a real say in a critical workplace issues like time off to care for a loved one, to the development of technology, uh, and protection from discrimination. Now, the National Labor Relations Act, passed in 1935, was a beacon of the New Deal. Uh, It ushered in a new era where workers uh, organizing to win could win for equality, to get our share of the American dream. And that wave of worker voice changed the direction of America. When workers started getting unions, America changed, and we built the greatest middle class that the world has ever seen. But the NLRA has been weakened continuously in the 85 years since its inception. And an entire union-busting industry, spending billions of dollars each year, now works nonstop to block workers from exercising the freedom that the law is supposed to protect. Now is the time. In fact, it's way past time to protect the right to organize for workers in the 21st century. The PRO Act is how we do it. 
And it's not an exaggeration to say that this is the most significant piece of legislation that will come before the House of Representatives this year. It protects the right to strike. It trumps the right to work sham. It ensures a process for reaching a first contract once a union's recognized. It provides substantial relief for workers whose rights have been violated and creates a true deterrent so employers think twice about violating the law. There are more than a million and a half seafarers in the world. Many of them work in horrendous conditions and are often victims of wage theft as employers refuse to pay them. The labor organization which represents the seafarers at the world level is the International Transport Workers Federation. The ITF represents about 19 million workers in 147 countries. One of the problems highlighted by the ITF is when ship owners register in countries where labor regulations for the seafarers are weak. This is known as working under flags of convenience. Just recently, the ITF's maritime coordinator, Jacqueline Smith, spoke to a committee of the Australian Senate about the ITF's flag of convenience campaign. The ITF has what we call a flag of convenience campaign that started in 1948. And that campaign had uh, two strands. One was a political, and that was to try to chase vessels flagging out back into national flags with uh, national owners, a genuine link in national seafarers. And the second was for those that were under flag of convenience, that those seafarers had decent um, working and living and wage conditions. So throughout those years, 1948 until we are here today, we see that the idea of chasing flag of convenience back into national flag is not necessarily, it's still there as a very important political goal, but at the same time we see a lot of national flags that to a certain extent um, operate very similar to mm -hmm. flag of convenience. It's ironic to think that you have over 10 countries that are landlocked countries that have registers. Now, why is that? Why would they even have? You know, you have Bolivia, Mongolia, uh, you have uh, Switzerland, Luxembourg, uh, Austria, just to name some. So that's why about four or five terrible, years ago, yeah. we decided, or the affiliates uh, decided, and the community decided that we needed to ensure that seafarers coming from uh, developing countries and developed countries were able to work within their own national trade because that, of course, maintains the important skills that they have that's important for their country. The Flag and Convenience campaign, as I said, we have 140 inspectors worldwide. Um, there are four of them that are here in uh, Australia. They do an amazing job. There are four. And our inspectors worldwide, on an average, every year, they're able to get back pay or owed wages to seafarers in the amount of 30 to 40 million US dollars. And that continues uh, despite the Maritime Labor Convention 2006 uh, came into force. So, yeah. and if you think that our inspectors, they're able to do around 10,000 ship visits per year, I'm sure that uh, if they were able to do twice as much, they would most likely be able to get even more or, or uncover. Absolutely. And that's when you're starting to talk about unfair competition. And that's when you start talking about exploitation. It's a reality that the only ones uh, that are benefiting from using flag of convenience vessel are the ship owners. 
Here with his report about union events is Labor Start correspondent Derek Blackadder. Each day, Labor Start's volunteers collect hundreds of news items about the struggles of workers and their unions from around the world in 35 languages. Here's a small sample. Our top story sections included links to coverage of yet more repression of independent unions in Algeria, the formation of a global alliance of unions representing app-based delivery drivers, and the coronavirus walkout by healthcare workers in Hong Kong. We also had news of strikes and lockouts in dozens of countries. Here are just a few highlights. We carried stories about wage strikes by Australian medical supply workers, Canadian community college staff, Indian road transport workers who not only struck work but started a hunger strike. Spanish healthcare workers were off the job for a day as they escalated their wage dispute. Also off work over wages were Argentinian fracking supplies workers and Brazilian offshore oil platform staff. Rollbacks were the issue in dispute involving locked-out Canadian solid waste workers as they resisted cuts to their sick days and vacations. Walkouts by workers finding government austerity policies included an ongoing series of one-day regional walkouts by Canadian teachers and Brazilian rural doctors who are demanding improved funding for the medical system there. Solidarity strikes in Canada saw workers across the country organizing pickets of petrol stations supplied by a refinery that has locked out its staff. Attacks on basic labor rights saw Mexican mine workers off the job as they pressed their demand for a safer workplace and for environmental protections for their families who live nearby. Namibian builders were off work in a protest against verbal and physical abuse by their Chinese project managers, and Peruvian public sector workers struck to defend themselves against restrictions on their right to strike. Our Working Women pages included stories about how the coronavirus threat has worsened the already difficult working conditions for domestic workers in Macau, support from the men's team for the U.S. women's national football side's efforts to gain pay equity, and the fight for gender equality in the Croatian news media. The free health and safety newswire we offer in cooperation with Hazards magazine carried stories to hundreds of union websites around the world about a report that concludes that five construction workers in the Indian city of Bengaluru fall to their deaths each and every month due to inadequate scaffolding. Employer actions taken against an Australian health and safety rep in the workplace. And of course, many stories about coronavirus preparations around the world. Currently, Labor Start is running four online actions. Take just a few seconds out of your day and join thousands of trade unionists around the world in helping workers make their lives better, or even help save those lives. This is Derek Blackadder from Labor Start, reporting for Radio Labor. Now here's the anthem of Australia's construction union, the CFME. Tricks and legal war 
Okay, that was uh, Radio Labor. Radio Labor and their report, Worldwide Union Activity, Worldwide Worker Activity, referring to those five workers in India, five workers a day uh, and a week fall to their death. The number worldwide of workers who die and work-related causes 3,500 every day your fellow workers are dying. In the United States, the number is around 250. 250 workers per day die of work-related causes. As always, this show is dedicated to them. Part of the radio labor thing this week is the New Deal, the Green New Deal in Europe. And this is something that's on the horizon. It's going to affect all of us. If the dire predictions are true, the entire economy is going to have to change. We can no longer pursue our greed, take it out on the earth. Even if the moderate predictions come true, great changes are ahead for all of us, including the nature of work. No longer are you going to be able to have a job that rips off the earth, that tears fossil fuels out of the, out of the ground. Anyway, let's listen to this. This is the European Union's New Deal. This is Solidarity News on Radio Labour. Hello, I'm Mark Boulanger. The Labour movement is hailing the European Union's recently announced initiative on the climate crisis as a positive step forward, but says much work is left to do. The EU has released a preliminary document entitled the European Green Deal, which will address the needs of 11 million workers who are directly affected. To find out more about the EU's Green Deal, I talked to Benjamin Denis. Mr. Denis is a policy advisor with Industrial European Union. The federation represents 7 million workers in 200 European unions. I asked Mr. Denis to describe the European Green Deal. The uh, European Green Deal is actually the main project of the new European Commission that started its mandate a couple of months ago, in December. 
The Green Deal is made of a, of a long list of initiatives uh, that should essentially put the EU on track to be carbon neutral and circular, becoming a circular economy by 2050. To quote the, the words of uh, Ursula von der Leyen, the new president of this uh, European Commission, this is the man on the moon moment of the EU. It gives you a little bit the idea of the, the level of ambition which is, which is behind the, the Green Deal. So at this stage, we, we have to, to uh, on the one hand, acknowledge that this is really positive to see the, the EU having such an ambitious project to mobilize its member states and the citizens to, to achieve something positive in the context of Brexit and, and the other crisis that the, the EU has gone through the, for the last years. Uh, this is something that we welcome. Uh, it's much more positive than the austerity agenda which uh, has driven the, the previous commissions. I, I maybe uh, I would like to, to stress another positive dimension of the Green Deal. It's obviously the willingness to put the, the social dimension, energy poverty, inequality, and of course employment, uh, at the core of the project. For the first time in, in many years, we see a European Commission starting with the social dimension being a core chapter of a main project. It's not anymore uh, an, as well as a chapter of, I would say, traditional neoliberal uh, greenwashing exercise. Now, the truth of the pudding is in the eating, and we know that we have to be extremely careful, extremely demanding in the next month, because we mainly have words, but what we need, of course, is to see action and tangible resources. Now, uh, we, we have to say, on the other hand, that at this stage there are a lot of uncertainties which uh, remain for different reasons, but, but mainly because at this stage of the Green Deal is 24 pages document made of something like 20, 30 possible initiatives. We have an indicative timeline, but for, for the rest there are a lot of question marks uh, floating around. Within the European Green Deal, which you have just described, there is the just transition mechanism. What is the just transition mechanism and why is it needed? The just transition mechanism, which has been proposed by the, the Commission, is basically a mechanism to support people and regions that might be impacted by decarbonization. Without, uh, without entering into too many details, it's a mechanism that will use the EU budget as well as other financial instruments of the European Union to support regions that are highly dependent on fossil fuel and fossil fuel related activities such as coal mining, uh, coal based power production and so on and so forth, uh, helping them to diversify their economy and to create uh, new new activity. In other words, to deal with the social and economic challenges that might be triggered by decarbonization. Why why is it needed? E even though we know that across the board the expected benefits of uh, fighting climate change exceed by far its cost, uh, we do not defend the status quo. It's crystal clear. But we also know that there are sectors and regions where the benefits of decarbonization will be much more difficult to secure. 
In a traditional neoliberal approach, we could pretend that we just need a, a target, a climate target, and, and the market will, will deliver. In such an approach, there is no need for public intervention, no need for the state or public authorities to take care about the possible uh, social adverse impact. But we all know uh, where such policies lead. Uh, they lead to disindustrialization, they lead to economic diversification, and then they lead to uh, um, deep and long-term unemployment, pervasive poverty, and so on and so forth. Uh, we, of course, as trade union organizations, have a completely different approach. We believe that those workers uh, who brought so much to the community deserve to be supported. We believe that when some regions are left behind, sooner or later the political bill has to be paid back. We also believe that when a public authority takes a strategic decision with so much impact, like reaching carbon neutrality in two decades, it is the duty of that authority, the public authority, to take care of all possible adverse effects. This is why we believe that a just transition approach, a just transition mechanism is absolutely needed to accompany the decarbonization or the, the climate agenda. How many workers are affected and what industries are they in? Uh, these are the, the elements that, that will uh, need to be clarified um, in, in the coming weeks and months. Uh, because obviously we have a kind of uh, first line with, with sectors like coal and lignite mining, you can add to that peat and shale oil industry, coal-based uh, electricity. And if you, if you make a calculation, you will have for the EU as a whole something like 250,000 direct jobs. If you take into account um, all the other jobs, uh, like in the transport sector, for instance, in the logistics, uh, you can easily double that number. So let's say that, roughly speaking, we have uh, for the EU as a whole something like 500,000 jobs which depend on uh, coal and lignite, both in the mining side and in the, in the, the power uh, production side. But it's not the, the, whole, uh, the whole discussion. I mean, if you look at uh, what might be the impact of reaching carbon neutrality in three decades, and this is what we are talking about, as I said, in the context of the Green Deal, uh, the, the European Commission would like to make of the European Union the first climate-neutral continent, it's obvious that the social impact will be much wider and much deeper than those um, 500,000 uh, jobs. Uh, we cannot move or, or shift uh, from an economy which still rely on fossil fuels to carbon neutrality in three decades without changing the labor market and the world of work at the same time. So to put a figure uh, on, on, on that broader debate, uh, if you consider all the sectors that might be exposed to decarbonization, uh, you have to add to coal, uh, coal-related industries, uh, energy-intensive industries. For the uh, European Union, you have uh, 7 million workers in those sectors like steel, chemical, glass, so on and so forth. You also have the automotive industry. In the automotive industry in the EU, you have 2.5 million direct jobs. But if you consider all the related value chains, you can uh, easily multiply that number by four or five. But let's say that 
conservative assumptions. You have altogether uh, in the sectors exposed to decarbonization 11 million of direct jobs for the EU as a whole. So these are big numbers. Could the European Green Deal be seen as a model for other regions in the world? To some extent, yes, because whatever the sector, whatever the country, whatever the continent, we know first that the pace of decarbonization must dramatically accelerate in the coming years if we want to be serious about climate change. We have to remind that according to the Paris Agreement, according to what the scientists have been telling us for years now, we have to reach, globally speaking, carbon neutrality as soon as possible around 2050. If we want to make it possible, if we want to make those climate targets reachable, it's clear that we must, from the outset, link the climate agenda with a strategy to keep the basic people and the workers on board. We need, in other words, to couple the climate energy agenda with a strong social agenda. And whatever the context, we know that the EU is not the US or is not South Africa, but in any case, what, what do we need? We need policy planning. We need to know what will happen. What are the sectors that will experience uh, job losses? What are the sectors that will experience strong transformation? What are the sectors that are expected to grow? To anticipate change, you need such a precise mapping. You have that in the just transition mechanism because countries will have to prepare just transition regional plans. Then you need funding. You need funding to trigger economic diversification through investment. You need funding to finance active labor market policies like training, retraining, upskilling measures. You have that as well in the just transition mechanism of the EU. And last but not least, you need participation. Workers want to be at the table and not on the menu. Workers want to have their say while public authorities are discussing their fate. And you also have to some extent some possibilities, not as strong, not as clear as we would like, but you have, you have in the just transition mechanism of the EU a clear call for member states, for, for countries to involve social partners, trade unions and employer organizations in the preparation and design of those just transition strategies. So yes, to some extent, the just transition mechanism can be used as a model for, for other regions, even though we also have to say that other similar initiatives already exist in the world, even though they are not at the same, uh, at the same scale than what the European Commission proposed. That was uh, Benjamin Denis, uh, Industrial Union Policy Advisor, addressing the issue of climate change, which is going to profoundly affect the way we think about work and the type of work we do. Okay. My good buddy Earl Coleman who's uh, recommended several songs to me up there in Sacramento. Here's his latest recommendation. Albert King and Stevie Ray Vaughan. Mm -hmm. 
They say, I want to sit in. They say, Stevie's here. Let him sit in. Uh, who is Stevie? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'll bring him on up. Let him sit in. He'd get up there and he'd hit two or three good licks. And then you'd back off. Then I'd be waiting and listening for you to come on down and mash you on the box. You know, go ahead and pick. I used to holler at you on the other side of the stage. Stop standing up there looking at me all out of whack and play your guitar, man. You know what I mean? And then you go ahead and go to play, you know what I mean? And I. Yeah. I didn't think you would, I didn't ever think you would be as bad as you are now. Though. Oh, I'm a bad boy. <laughs> you really done grown up, you know. I'll be trying. Yeah, that's right. You're coming on. But don't try to keep what you got One thing you can't on. do, right. There's one thing you can't do. You can't let your head get big. You got to keep it. Got to stay on down there so I can brag about you. Don't, I'll catch up with you. And I have this whoop. I got a whoop back there. Big whoop at the bottom of my feet. Huh? Yeah, right <laughs> on the bottom of my feet. I'm 
Okay, Stevie Ray Vaughan kind of got cut off there. Stevie Ray Vaughan and uh, Albert King. Vaughan playing a lot of uh, Albert King-inspired licks there. Thanks to my good buddy Earl Coleman. So it's Valentine's Day yesterday. You got to play something for your wife, huh? Your soulmate. And uh, here it is. From the great Merle Haggard. Ladies and gentlemen, Cheryl Crow and 1998 Kennedy Center honoree, Willie Nelson. It's for you, Seal. Just long enough 
Okay, every day I wake up like that. Today I started loving you again. That was uh, by the great Merle Haggard, sung by Willie Nelson and Cheryl Crow. I want to play something by uh, a great labor leader. Great labor leader, A. Philip Randolph, who was able to achieve what a lot of people thought was impossible, to organize a mostly all-black union against a mighty capitalist consortium of companies, the Pullman Company. And here is uh, A. Philip Randolph speaking. Now I give you A. Philip Randolph. The first condition of being worthy of help from others is for an individual, race or nation, to do something for itself. I consider the fight for the black masses to be the greatest service that I can render to my people. And the fight alone is my complete compensation. My name is A. Philip Randolph. The A stands for Asa. I was born April 15, 1889, in Crescent City, Florida. I am the youngest of two sons, and both my mother and father were the descendants of slaves. I began my political career in the socialist politics of the 1920s Harlem Renaissance. I have long fought for equal opportunity for black workers and for economic progress for all workers through trade unions regardless of race, color, nationality, sex, or political or religious beliefs. Not everyone agreed with the vision of racial progress through militant struggles for economic independence. In the tough stages of organizing the first march on Washington to integrate the country's defense industries in 1941, for instance, Arthur W. Mitchell, then a black representative of the U.S. Congress from Chicago, called me the most dangerous Negro in America. In 1925, I, along with Milton Webster and many other brothers and sisters across the United States, undaunted and unafraid, fired by the vision of better days of economic justice, organized the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters in the sacred name of truth and righteousness against the Pullman Company's despotic company union known as the Employee Representation Plan, which is company organized, company owned, and company controlled. This was considered the first 
major effort to unionize the Pullman Company. In the eyes of some people, the effort to organize the Pullman Porters appeared to be too herculean. Yes, visionary. Down in Thomas's rushed forward to advise that it was impracticable, suicidal, folly, impossible. But our answer? We have organized. Yes, we have organized over 7,000 strong men in the Pullman service running on the road, built, supported, and maintained the organization, and made it possible for the Brotherhood to present the Porter's case. Despite the unlawful intimidation practiced by the company upon the Porter's to compel them, the Porter's, to act against their own interests, the Porter's are standing strong and from meetings from coast to coast have resolutely signified their desire to push forward with their fight to secure labor rights, better working conditions, and manhood rights.
to the steps of the Lincoln Memorial in 1963, where I stood along with some of the other organizers of the March on Washington, Byron Rustin, Roy Wilkins, James Farmer, Whitney Young, John Lewis, and Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and declared, fellow Americans, we are gathered here today in the large demonstration of the history of this nation. Let the nation and the world know the meaning of our numbers. We are not a pressure group. We are not an organization or a group of organizations. We are not a mob. We are the advance guard of a massive moral revolution for jobs and freedom. I thank you. Capitalism, under capitalism, under the runaway capitalism that we have, where capitalism is sold to us as a virtue. Greed, greed has become a virtue. If you don't have money, you don't have anything. Here's Ry Cooter. I'm do a little uh, polka number for you here. This is an old song written by Woody Guthrie back in the Depression days. And uh, tells a story about these the people, they call them Okies and Arkies and stuff, you know, because they came from Oklahoma and, and Arkansas and, and uh, Texas and places. And the dust storm came and, and ruined their farms and, and their <clears throat> houses and everything. They had to get out, figured they couldn't do worse. Said, so long, it's been good to know you. And we're moving west. And they got out there, they found all these uh, border police at the California border telling them to go back. They said, we can't go back. He said, man, you can't stay here. And this little song tells about uh, what happened to him. Do re mi.
Okay, Ry Cooter there. Ably supported and assisted by the great Flaco Jimenez, the king of the Norteño accordion. And it seems like that's the story, not just for the situation he was talking about when farmers and farm workers came to California in the 30s. That's what they were told. But just in general, in capitalism, money talks. Money buys things. Money buys Congress people. Money buys influence. Uh, money buys new laws that help you make more money. If you ain't got the do re me, boys, if you ain't got the do re me. All right, let's talk about a couple of our news stories. The longest strike in America. This is from Indies Times. The longest strike in America needs a political savior. The longest ongoing strike in America today is happening in the media capital of the world. The spectrum workers of New York City are beginning to feel as though everyone has forgotten about them. For those who soldier on, the fight has become much bigger than a contract dispute. From the very beginning, the strike has been a battle of attrition far more than it has been a negotiation. By the time Charter acquired Time Warner in 2016 and rebranded it as Spectrum, the com company's 1,800 unionized cable technicians, members of IBEU Local 3, could sense trouble. Leading up to that time, we saw changes happening in the country where they went away from customer service says a 20-year Spectrum veteran and union shop steward. They were doing things for increasing stock prices as opposed to customer service. And this, I'll just intersperse here, this, this is how big corporations work. They're concerned about their stock price because so many of them, so many of the executives are heavily invested, are paid in uh, stock certificates or uh, um, stock. So if the stock's high, they're earning a lot of money. If it's not, their, their pension or whatever is tied to that is going to go down. The new owners struck a hostile pose toward the union. They showed little interest in meaningful contract negotiations. Workers say that Charter also began imposing stricter disciplinary rules and making changes in the metrics used to evaluate employees and in internal training programs, making it harder to advance within the company. Their attitude was, do what I say and you can grieve it later. If we said, I can't drive this truck, it's got a broken windshield. They'd say, do it anyway and you can file a grievance. In March 2017, the union went on strike. 
The company proceeded to hire outside contractors to do the work of the technicians, and the two sides remained doggedly opposed. After a year, the company launched a bid to decertify the union using a former supervisor who the union says dropped into the role of a technician in order to file a challenge, trying to convince workers to give up on union representation entirely. The decertification attempt, mired by claims, marked by claims of coercion and unfair labor practices, has been tied up in the NLRB. The strike drags on. Goes on to talk about these workers and what's needed is someone needs to come to their aid. A group of several hundred cable workers gutted by three long years of financial and personal sacrifice cannot have a fair fight with a roughly $111 billion telecom company. Spectrum strikers are a case study in how stark the differences are between traditional local union power and the power of a modern mega corporation. In December, the workers held a rally in New York City Hall marking 1,000 days on strike. They were joined by a host of local and state politicians vowing to support them. But talk is cheap. Unless the Charter Spectrum franchise in New York is actually rejected or a serious financing campaign is mounted for a costly public option, the outlook for those who have struck with, stuck with the strike is bleak. How much political and economic pressure can working people really bring to bear? What do you do when the corporation says, F you? They're tearing us apart little by little. If we don't start to revamp and change the way we're fighting back against them, we're going to lose. So look it up. The longest strike in America needs a political savior on in these times. And here's what we were talking about. Also, they were talking about on uh, radio labor. One of the most significant bills to strengthen workers' abilities to organize in the past 80 years passed the House on Thursday, the latest sign of momentum for the labor movement. Protecting the Right to Organize Act, known as the PRO Act, would amend some of the country's decades-old labor laws to give workers more power during disputes at work add penalties for companies that retaliate against workers who organize, and grant some hundreds of thousands of worker collective bargaining rights they don't currently have. It would also weaken right-to-work laws in 27 states that allow employees to forego participating in and paying dues to unions. 
bill is unlikely to be taken up by the GOP-controlled Senate, as Republicans and business groups have argued forcefully against it, saying it would hurt employers, violate privacy rights, and be a major boon for national unions. Of course they don't want you to have a union. They, of course they don't want your union to have any power or any ability to challenge them. Your work makes them rich. The bill would give the NLRB, which enforces federal labor law, the power to fine companies up to $50,000 per violation. Amar Alexander, chairman of the Committee on Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions, has said the committee will not consider the legislation this session. So hopefully when we gain back the Senate and increase the lead in the House, this will be one of the things that they take up. Okay. Labor and Love Radio. And remember again about the... Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival, May 1st to May, March 1st to March 7th. And remember Mutiny Radio, a bastion of free speech, of programmer-driven content. This stuff isn't pre-recorded and pre-programmed for us. When you hear one of us, one of these programmers we do it for love we're here with our voices come on down and get your own voice find your voice here at mutiny radio play some music In the morning and I ask myself It's like worth living, should I blast myself? I'm tired of being poor and even worse I'm black, my stomach hurts so I'm looking for a purse to snatch Cops give a damn about a negro Pull a trigger, kill a he's a hero Get a to the kids who the hell care One less hungry mouth on the welfare First ship them dope and let them deal with brothers Give them guns, step back, watch them kill each other It's time to fight back, that's what Huey said Two shots in the dark, now Huey's dead I got love for my brothers But we can never go nowhere unless we share with each other we gotta start making changes Learn to see me as a brother instead of two distant strangers And that's how I was supposed to be I can never take a brother if he's close to me uh, I let it go back to when we played as kids But then it changed And that's the way it is Come on, come on That's just the way it is Things will never be the same That's just the way it is Oh yeah Just the way it is. 
no changes All I see is racist faces Misplaced hate makes disgrace to racist We under, I wonder what it takes to make this One better place, let's erase the waste it Take the evil out the people, they'll be acting right Cause both black and white and smoke tonight And the only time we chill is when we kill each other It takes skill to be real time to heal each other And although it seems evident, we ain't ready to see a black president uh, It ain't a secret or concealed a fact A penitentiary's packed and it's filled with blacks but some things will never change Try to show another way But staying in the dope game Now tell me what's a mother to do Being real don't appeal to the brother in you You gotta operate the easy way I made a G today But you made it in a sleazy way Selling back to the kids I gotta get paid But hey, well that's the way it is Come on, come on That's just the way it is Things will never be the same That's just the way it is Making some changes. Let's change the way we eat. Let's change the way we live. And let's change the way we treat each other. You see, the old way wasn't working, so it's on us to do what we gotta do to survive. And still, I see no changes. Can a brother get a little peace? It's war on the streets and a war in the Middle East. Instead of war on poverty, they got a war on drugs so the police can bother me. And I ain't never did a crime I ain't have to do. But now I'm back with the facts, giving it back to you. Don't let them jack you up, back you up. And pips back you up You gotta learn to hold your own They get jealous when they see you with your mobile phone But tell the cops I can't touch this I don't trust this When they try to rush, I bust this That's the sound number two You say it ain't cool My mama didn't raise no fool And as long as I stay black I gotta stay strapped And I never get to lay back Cause I always gotta worry about the payback Some buck that I roughed up way back Coming back after all these years Right, tap, 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 tap That's the way it is just the way it is Things will never be the same That's just the way it is Tupac Shakur there, just the way it is. I want to play some of this. I've, I've got a little time left. I want to play some of this interview with Sarah Nelson. Um, this is on the Stitcher website, Working People. It says, the one and only Sarah Nelson, flight attendant, union activist, and president of the Association of Flight Attendants. Here goes.
My name is Sarah Nelson. I am a union flight attendant for 24 years and also the president of the Association of Flight Attendants, representing 50,000 flight attendants at 20 airlines. Hell yeah. Well, Sarah, like I was just telling you before we started recording, um, you know, it's an honor to have you on the show. We've been wanting to get you on for a long, long time. And uh, yeah, we're really, really excited that you got some time to, to sit down and talk with us. We really, really appreciate it. Um, so, you know, as I understand it, uh, you are on the ground yet again, um, being a badass as always. And um, you've got some stuff going on with, uh, with Delta right now. Yes, we do. Uh, and we try not to stay on the ground for too long because, you know, <laughs> <laughs> we're going everywhere in the world. we got to build a uh, worker movement around the world. Um, but that's that's part of why it's so important to organize flight attendants. Uh, we are craft-specific at AFA, um, AFA-CWA. We uh, organize flight attendants, and uh, the first priority of our union is to bring all flight attendants together. That's not just because it sounds nice, but also because it has uh, real practical importance for our bargaining power, for our political power, um, and uh, for our ability to just deal with all the things that we have throughout the course of our career and beating back discrimination and fighting for equality. But we also see our role as being really significant in the labor movement because we know that even though our union is craft specific, we have to link arms with other workers. If other workers can't do their jobs, we can't do ours either. Our industries are experiencing a lot of the same uh, ways to try to control workers, deny us our rights, uh, two-tiered employment, contract employment scheduling that doesn't allow us to control our own lives or uh, meet the ability to get benefits. Healthcare is failing everywhere. And uh, staffing is at all-time lows. Workers are doing more than ever before with, with less. So for all of those reasons, we see our role as flight attendants as being critical to spreading the word about the labor movement, how important the labor movement is, how important it is to have a voice at work, to be able to come together and express worker power. And um, also in this world of globalization, we have to lift the standards around the globe. And flight attendants fly to every corner of the earth when some can only dream of crossing borders. So our role with contact with almost more people than any other work group is to spread the good word about unions and come together being incredibly informed, engaged, mobilized, uh, workforce that is constantly organizing. Hell yeah. Well, yeah. Um, <laughs> Thanks to our organizing at Delta. Awesome. Well, you know, and, and you know, you, you had an interview that just came out with uh, the Associated Press, right, where you kind of, you're talking about this, and it, and it was like, you know, I was just getting deja vu reading this because, I mean, it's just a, it's a story that I feel like we're hearing in so many other industries. Like the first thing that came to mind was the strike at GM and kind of the ways that, you know, auto workers had felt like they had made sacrifices when when their parent company asked them to during the recession with the kind of um, understanding that once things got better, once profits started going up, that, you know, they, they would get, you know, a piece of that. And, you know, in this in this interview with Associated Press, you know, you say, and I quote, airline employees took incredible cuts during the bankruptcies from 2001 to 2013. 
30% to 40% cut in pay, loss of pensions, a shift of costs and burden for health care, and not all of that has been recovered. Our staffing has been cut to minimum so that we are working harder than ever um, when we are at work, and we are all working longer hours to make the same amount of pay. The airlines are profiting in the billions of dollars, and we expect our fair share. Labor investment has not rebounded to what it should be now that the airlines are making a substantial profit again. What has increased is the amount of stock buybacks that the airlines have announced, end quote. And so, Sarah, I wanted to ask, like, you know, again, like I said, like that that scenario seems so familiar. But, um, you know, this this week, you know, that that is um, kind of taking shape in a campaign um, with Delta that has to do with uh, this little little profit sharing thing they got going on. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah. So, you know, what's interesting is during all those cutbacks, one of the things that management was willing to negotiate with those of us who were in the, that bankruptcy process, but doing it through at least um, a, a process that had us make changes to our contracts. So we're still locking in our contracts. And one of the things that we were able to negotiate was profit sharing so that when the airlines were doing better, we would share in those profits. And management was very willing to negotiate that profit sharing at a time when all the airlines were uh, losing money because typically they are focused on the short term. They're not focused on the long term like the employees are. So profit sharing became standard uh, because of unions across the industry. And in order to compete and keep the unions off the property, Delta instituted profit sharing for all their employees led by their pilots union that does have a contract. So the first year that they had profit sharing was in 2007 after they exited bankruptcy. They had a couple more years during the recession of uh, 2008 and 2009 and no payout at all. And as they have really uh, started to feel the benefits of a consolidated industry where they can control the prices and they can maximize profits, that profit sharing has reached as high as 21.46% in 2015. Ironically, after that, Delta decided to cut the formula and give less in profits to employees starting in 2016. Well, the pilots bought them, and they kept their profit sharing where it was in their contract. And what Delta had to do to avoid a mutiny of their employees who were so angry, who didn't have contracts and, and were threatening organizing, was to restore the formula. But they only did it at the end of the year. So now they are working under a new formula that provides less in what the airline is making. But the other thing that Delta is doing is they are making twice as much as any other airline. So to say that they're paying out 16.6% this year in profits is on the backs of employees who shoulder cuts to their pay, cuts to their sick leave, cuts to their health care all year long. They don't have those benefits in their paycheck every single month or in those benefits every single month. And now Delta is promoting this as though they're just giving this away to the employees, when in reality it was unions who negotiated this first. Uh, Delta's profits are higher than anyone else, twice as much as their nearest competitor. And on a percentage basis, each, each employee turns out 12% more in revenue uh, than any other airline. So they should be seeing a return on that, but they should be seeing, seeing a return on that in a union contract that provides that return all year long, along with the profit sharing that is paid out to the other union employees. 
Man, they love making themselves seem like the the benefactor for doing what they're supposed to do, huh? <laughs> yes, and of course they also use this as part of their anti-union campaign. So they they lead people to believe that if you vote for the union, they can take this away. And the truth is that if you vote for the union, you lock it in because the Railway Labor Act says that management cannot retaliate against their employees for voting for the union. So we are running a campaign this week um, to help this seep into the workforce who have been led to believe that that's the case to say, no, if you like it, you like getting this profit sharing, vote for the union, lock it in, like it, lock it in. And so we're, we're out at the airports uh, today and all week long. Uh, talking about this and really trying to destroy this uh, union-busting falsity that management is trying to push in their fear tactic campaign. Sarah Nelson there, head of the Association of Flight Attendants and a possible uh, contender uh, for president of the AFL-CIO, talking about their negotiations with Delta and how the company will do anything, anything to affect their bottom line. Um, seems like the whole, <clears throat> the whole uh, point of corporations now is no longer to serve people, but to affect the bottom line. Like she says, the bottom line is. Uh, all important. So check it out. That's on uh, Stitcher under Working People. Everybody in, nobody out. Sarah Nelson. Okay, we're about to move out of here now and leave you to my buddy, Scott O'Walker and his show, Flat Pla- Fat Black Plastic. Remember... If one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, someone else got a dollar they didn't get. Hmm? And if you don't have a seat at the table, the negotiating table that is, you're on the menu. Remember, never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor. I say labor, I mean you. Of course, they don't, don't want you to have a union. Your work makes them rich. This is the big signing off. Bye to all my Valentines. Solina. Thanks again to Earl Coleman. Suggestions. Talk to you all next week and remember about Mutiny Radio. Mutiny Radio needs you. Needs your participation, needs your voice, needs your money. Check out our GoFundMe on Facebook and contribute. The station works because you do. All right. Rayburn Love signing off.
que vivo Cardonio oruga cultivo Cultivo una rosa blanca your boy Sifo here here to let you know that the fifth annual Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival is March 1st through 7th 2020 with special podcasts and comedy shows 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. all week. Get your tickets now on Eventbrite. Just search Mutiny Radio and get ready for 76 comics from all over the U.S. coming for 66 programs in seven days all here at 2781 21st Street in the heart of the mission. Or if you can't be with us, listen live or podcast from anywhere in the world at www.mutinyradio.fm. Join us March 1st to 7th for these amazing events. What kind of a future? Law Tigers, we fight for motorcyclists. We're not just motorcycle lawyers, we're part of the riding community. Law Tigers watches over riders. If you're injured in a motorcycle accident, we'll help you get your motorcycle repaired or replaced and assist you with your damaged gear too. We're by your side every step of the way. With the Law Tigers, you never ride alone. If you're injured in a motorcycle accident, call 1-800-LAW-TIGERS or visit us on the web at lawtigers.com. The Law Tigers, California's motorcycle lawyer. Victor Davis, Harris Law Firm, LLP, 180 Circle, Suite 300, Sacramento, California, 95834. Hit the 
donate button, stream them live, download a podcast, have some fun! Michael Spiegelman. And I am Carl, not Spiegelman. Join us every Sunday, 2 to 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time on MutinyRadio.fm for... Let's watch a full-length movie on... YouTube. We watch the best movies that... uh, Aren't they good? Well, they're chosen by Uh, Here's his theme song again. Bye. Okay, bye. Watch What's happening? This is your boy, Rob Edwards. I'm here to tell you about the 5th Annual Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival. It's March 1st through the 7th, 2020, with special podcasts and comedy shows 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. all week long. Get your tickets on Eventbrite. Just search Mutiny Radio and get ready for 76 comments from all over the U.S. Coming for 66 programs in seven days, all here at 2781 21st Street in the Deep Mission, or listen live or podcast from anywhere in the world at mutinyradio.fm. Join us March 1st through the 7th for these amazing events. Billy Bob, you ever want to be funny? Well, my dogs think I'm funny, Daryl. Well, I mean, you ever want to be, like, in front of an audience? Like, other than, like, squirrels, dogs, and dead persons? Oh, shit. From time to time, I've given it a thought of two. You know, if you go to joke workshop, there's more than two peoples paying attention to your jokes, and they ain't even gonna be jerks about it. Daryl, are you serious? I can get people to listen to my jokes? And they'll even say nice things, dude, before they tell you how to get improvements. No way. What is this dag nabbit thing called? It's Joke Workshop. Joke Workshop? Yep, every Monday, 6 to 8 p.m. on the Mutant Radius. So you're saying I could tell my jokes every Monday from 6 to 8 that's what I'm saying. It's the Joke Workshop Mondays, 6 to 8 p.m. at the Mutant Radius. Yahoo! Four ninety-nine. 
Hungry for a burger? Mutiny Radio thinks you'll find the best burger in San Francisco at Counter Offer, located inside Bender's Bar and Grill. Counter Offer's menu aims to please your drunk face. Tater tots are served daily. On Tuesday nights, Counter Offer serves specials off the Taco Bell menu, only better. You can enjoy your favorite Taco Bell item without the guilt. Counter Offer uses only fresh ingredients and never store-bought shit. Special ingredients are made from scratch daily, including beans, ketchup, mustard, habanero sauce, and ranch dressing. Counter Offer even serves vegan mac and cheese. All of this great food is served 2 p.m. to 10 p.m. daily and until 11 p.m. on Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. Counter Offer is located inside Bender's Bar and Grill at 806 South Van S. Be sure to tell them Mutiny sent you. Counter Offer, baby. Are you tired of swimming through a sea of podcasts? Are ye on a raft without a patter? Well, gather around me, sea dogs, and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of MutinyRadio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice, LGBTQ-friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk, MutinyRadio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to you. Full Black Classic. Muni 